Well, our readings this morning are uh, full of hope and confidence and uh, belief and it just feels like the readings this morning are these kinds of things that are drawing us into a, uh, a security in God. Um, but I can't be the only one who thinks this morning that life doesn't always work out according to the way, you know, these, these scriptures seem to be drawing us in. I read a story not long ago about a paratrooper, young guy who's about to make one of his very first jumps out of an airplane, and he's been told exactly what to do, you know, pull the first cord, and if that doesn't work, you don't worry, you got this second one, and, and don't worry, at the, at the landing zone, at the drop zone, there'll be a truck there to pick you up. So the young guy jumps out of the airplane, no problem, he's having a good time, he pulls the first cord, and uh-oh, you know, nothing's happening. But he thinks, oh, no problem, you know, they've told me I got a security one, so he pulls the second one, uh-oh, nothing's happening. And so he thinks to himself, oh, great, I'll bet the truck won't be there either. <laughs> Somebody explain that to the person on here. You know, it just doesn't always, uh, you know, work out the way, the way we think it when we you know, are trying to have all this hope and confidence. I mean, the truth of it is sometimes we do lose hope. Uh, a friend of mine the other day told me this story of a girl named Susie whose husband had been slipping in and out of consciousness because he'd been in a coma for several months, and things were looking really grim, and so she was sitting next to his bedside every day. Well, one day as he slipped back into consciousness, he motioned for her to come close to him, and so she pulled her chair close to the bed and leaned her ear close down, you know, to be able to hear her husband And he says to her, you know, in a whisper, his eyes filling with tears, you've been with me through all the bad times. When I got fired, you were with me. You stuck right beside me. When my business went under, you were there. When we lost the house, you were there. When I got shot, you stuck with me. When my health started failing, you were right by my side. And you know what? feeling a little warmth in her heart. She leans down and says, yes, dear. And he says, I think you're bad luck. (laughs) So um, one can lose hope. One can have trouble really hanging on to faith, actually, and confidence in God. So here's a thought I just want to put before you this morning. What if God is conscious of you? and actively caring for you. I mean, just think about that for a moment. I mean, most of all, like, if you'd have said to me when I was a teenager, God is conscious of you, I would have been trying to hide things behind my back, you know? I mean, that's usually the way we think of, you know, well, if God's conscious of me, that's a bad thing because I know I'm doing things wrong and we don't really want God to be conscious of us. But what if you're just out at the beach having fun with your friends and you dive in the water, and you didn't know there was a sandbar there, and suddenly you're quadriplegic. I mean, Debbie and I have had two friends just in the last year or so, we're just having fun right here in Southern California, one at uh, Back Bay and one just out at the ocean, who now have no movement in their limbs. They're just young people having fun. Or where's God when you're tooling down a highway? Was it in Tennessee or something? And you have buses on top of each other and children injured. And like, where's God then? How do you have hope and confidence and trust and security that God is conscious of you then? And if he is conscious, in what way is he conscious of you in those moments? 
What can it possibly mean besides some preacher saying platitudes that God is actively conscious of you and caring for you when those things happen? What if you're a medical missionary? You're, uh, I think it was an ophthalmologist, had spent 30 years serving these people in the backwoods of Afghanistan. And along with a team of 10 other people, six Americans, a Briton, an Afghan, I can't remember, maybe a German, month after month after month, hiking and walking and riding horses, all to serve the poorest of the poor, to give medical care to people who could never have medical care. You go to lunch, you kind of think you know what you're doing, you've got no security because you've never needed it, you've got no people around you to protect you in that sense, so you go to lunch, you come back to your Jeep and you're accosted by allegedly the Taliban. And you're made to sit down in front of your Jeeps and they ramage through your stuff and systematically shoot you in the head. What? Where the heck, how in the heck is God possibly conscious of and caring for people when his own people who are serving the poorest of the poor find themselves brutally murdered? How is what's going on in these readings? What is it that Abram's experiencing? And you know, we've been reading Genesis here in the readings for a few weeks now. He's got this ongoing kind of conversational relationship with God. Remember him sort of bargaining with God over saving Sodom and Gomorrah? And now here he is sort of wrestling with God over how is it that my family's, how is it that you're going to do this thing? You don't seem present to me now. You don't seem conscious of me now. You don't seem actively caring for me now. I've got to take matters into my own hands because you're not coming through. You're not giving me an heir from my own loins. So how is it practically speaking? And trust me, Abraham had not read a systematic theology. Nobody had yet taught him about God's sovereignty. He hadn't read anything about, you know, the, the theological tension between God's sovereignty and, you know, man's free will. None of that is going on in his head. This is a very concrete, personal relationship with this living God. And he's trying to make sense of his real life when it doesn't seem like that God is very conscious of him at all. Because God, if you're conscious of me, how can you be letting your plan die? This was your plan. You announced it to me. You said my descendants were going to be more numerous than the stars of the sky or the sand of the, of the sea, but it's not happening. So in what way are you conscious of me? And this is what's going on between him and God. But the psalmist gives us some clues as to what this could possibly mean, what it could mean to actually live in a hope-filled, faith-filled, confident relationship with God so that there's this ongoing interaction between God and us in some sort of positive way. And so the psalmist teaches that the first thing is this, and you can look at your reading this morning if you'd want, where the psalmist said, God chose the people for his inheritance. And that little word choosing just alerts us to the fact that what's going on for us as Christians is a fundamentally um, personal thing. And, that, and I don't mean that in the way of... Um, you know, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus in the sense of, you know, how we use that phrase to talk about, are you saved? That's not what I mean. What I mean is that religion, religion very easily, sort of its default position, you know how like you have a screensaver on your computer that pops up if you've not, you know, been there for a while and it sort of puts the programs in the background, you've got this screensaver that's your default position. 
Well, the screensaver for religion, for all religions and, and for 2,000 years of sort of difficulty or challenge with Christianity, that screensaver, that default position, is almost always something abstract. It's something conceptual. It's something theological. It's a, it's a proposition or an idea. And it's something that we somehow think that we can hang on to those ideas. And the ideas aren't bad. I love ideas. I love theology. I love concepts. All I'm saying is when it gets right down to it, when buses pile on buses and your colleagues are shot and God's not coming through with the plan that he himself has announced to you, those are the moments where your religion is personal or it's nothing. But see, when it gets really hard, that's when we want, to, we want to then appeal to some sort of abstract bit of theology to help us get through it rather than sitting with the pain of it. So the psalmist says, the first thing is, if you're going to hang on to some sort of faith-filled, confident hope in God, is to realize that it's always personal. Look again at your psalm reading. The Lord sees all of mankind. That is to say, he's conscious of you. God considers everything people do. He's aware and he's involved. Again, we see in the Genesis reading where it says that the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And so now this is very powerful communication. And you can see how personal this is. It's a word from the Lord and he's actually having a vision of the Lord. And we see in this that one of the, the, I think the two things that, that most work against us having this sort of personal confidence in the moments of life that God is with us is God says, look at your text, Abram, do not be afraid. You know, the number one commandment in the Bible is not don't smoke dope. I'm against that, by the way. Uh, The number one commandment in the Bible isn't watch what your zippers are doing. Though I'm all for orthodox, human sexuality. The number one commandment in the Bible, the most frequent commandment in the Bible is do not be afraid. It is over and over and over again. Because what happens is we have these concepts, these ideas, these big pictures that God's up in heaven and he's in control and then suddenly you lose your job. Or out of nowhere, you're just having fun with your friends and you can't move your body. Or out of nowhere, you found that your spouse has been unfaithful or whatever. And so now you've got these two things going. And normally the way that we resolve that tension in ourselves is fear. It's fear that there's something wrong with me. Fear that I must not have heard God's plan because he's not, you know, in Abram's case, he's, he's not delivering this son. And so God says to Abraham, do not be afraid. The second thing that happens when these two stories don't match up, kind of the promises of God and what he says and what I'm experiencing in my life is we, been, we begin to accuse God, right? Look at your story with Abram. He says, look, God, this was your idea. You're the one that said that I was gonna have all these amazing descendants and you're gonna do this amazing thing through my family, but you're not coming through. You're not doing your part. I remain childless. There's no error. H-E-I-R. There's, there's no error. There, this isn't happening. What are you doing? And so they go through this. And at the end of this story, we have uh, some of the most important words in the Bible. Paul quotes them. They've been quoted endlessly by theologians where it says, Abram believed the Lord 
and the Lord credited to him as righteousness. Now, what does that mean there? Like, like did, did Abram uh, come forward at a meeting and confess his sins, and therefore God said, okay, now you're righteous? Now, that's not what's going on in the story. What's going on in the story? What's going on in the story is the tussle. God said he was up to this. Abraham's experiencing this. This big tussle's going on. And finally, it says that he believes God. And that word there, believe, means he places his confidence in. He trusts in. He acts as if what he's hearing is true. That's what faith and belief means. It means to place your confidence in something. And when God sees Abraham do that, he says, you're righteous. Now, sorry to be a tad technical on a Sunday morning at nine o'clock, but the, the Greek term for righteousness, dikaiosuni, means truly good. And so it can mean the forgiveness of sins. It can mean cleansing. It includes all that. But dikaiosuni means to be truly good. And what God's seeing is, what God's seeing is in Abram is this alignment between Abram's heart his trust that God will indeed come through. And when God sees that, he says, Abram, that's what I'm after. I'm after that kind of alignment between your heart and your soul and your mind and who I am as God and what I'm doing. This is why the text in Hebrews uh, in our readings this morning uh, commends this idea that um, now faith is being sure of what we hope for. It's being certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. So if you want to know what Abram's being commended for, when he says, when God says to him, you're righteous, he's being commended for trusting with the kind of certainty, with the kind of surety that that which he cannot see and is not seeing right now will come to pass. Now, I just want you to think, again, look, at, look in your bulletins at, at our reading from Hebrews, and I just want you to focus on that word, sure and on the word certain. Because in my experience, both working with non-Christians and especially my experience working with young pastors who are working with non-Christians, and even in sort of, you know, barely believing people in the church, there's probably nothing more alive in our culture right now than this. Can we actually be sure of anything? Do, do human beings even have the capacity for certainty? But yet this is what God is actually commending. So the very thing that we're questioning today is the very thing that God looks at his people and commends them for, that you actually have kind of a surety, a confidence, an awareness, a, a concrete, grounded, personal, experienced kind of surety and certainty that I'm with you even when you do not see it. This is why the text says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. That text doesn't mean that it's impossible to please God unless you leave margins in your lives for places where you don't understand him and you fill those margins in with something we call faith. That's not what's happening in this text. There's a an old saying for that, sort of, in, that in the modern scientific world, we had the God of the gaps. So when we didn't understand, uh, let's say, very well, 
then the places in physics that we didn't understand, that would be sort of the space where God could be. That must be where God exists. Because as soon as we could know something, well, then that must be human. That's a sort of human knowledge. And that doesn't work very well, and it's not what the Bible is talking about here. What the Bible's talking about here is a kind of personal surety that is not first and foremost an intellectual surety. It certainly includes that. Like if I asked you, are you sure you have enough gas in your tank to get to San Diego? And you're starting here from Costa Mesa, and you look, and you've got three quarters of a tank, and you're driving a Honda Civic. You say, yeah, I'm pretty sure. That's what's in play here. That's sort of just grounded, simple assurity. So, yeah, I mean, there's some, there's some basic intellect. I can look at a dashboard, and I can see that I have three quarters of a tank. So, yes, there's some basic cognition there, but that's not the fundamental thing. The fundamental thing is you get into your car with this assurance that I'm going to get there. And you relax the whole way during the journey because you have this sort of certainty, this sort of surety that I'll get there. Now, certainly anything can happen along the way, but you just have a knowing. Now, on the other hand, uh, Debbie and I were in Montana this weekend uh, visiting a friend, and I did something I never do, but we were driving from Spokane to Flathead Lake in Montana, and I, when I rented the car, I, um, I prepaid the gas, which I never do that, because, you know, you're supposed to bring it back empty. Well, who wants to bring a car back empty? Like, right? So you're driving hundreds of miles, and you're trying to figure out, okay, how can I get there that's just empty enough so I'm not wasting money, but I have a, a surety in my heart that I'll actually get back to hurts. Are you with me? That's what God's saying is you don't want to live that way. You want to live with more of the assurance of, yeah, I'm getting in my car and I'm going to get on the 73 and the 405 and the 5 and I'm going to get down to San Diego just fine because I got three quarters of a tank. So you sit in your car comfortably is maybe not the right word. Peacefully. You sit in your car with peace. Now, you know that, yeah, you could have a flat tire. There could be traffic at the border. I mean, anything could happen. But there's a basic sort of fundamental faith. And that's why Abel, he doesn't stand here as a theological idea about sacrifice. He stands here as somebody who got what God wanted and he participated with it. Enoch, who never died, didn't not die because he was perfect, but he walked in this sort of amazing sort of certainty with God. Noah, in holy fear, built an ark. Abraham obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. I love the way Peterson gets this in the message when he says, each one of these people of faith died... Yet, have, yet not having in hand what was promised, but still believing. I mean, I got to admit, when I'm sitting in an airport in Spokane and pick up a USA Today in the, in the little shop just because I'm bored and there's nothing to do, and I read the stories of these missionaries being shot, it is no fun. Especially I think of these three women. I don't know why that one... Like, how does that work? But in those moments, can I say, and by the way, this is what I think the gospel reading is getting at this morning. When you get right down to it, you guys, this is not conceptual. When you get right down to it, better for you when the Lord returns that you're watching. Better for you, Jesus said, than when all kinds of crap's going on all around you. Better.
If you find yourself in a concrete, personal, trusting, local relationship with Jesus, not an abstract, historical, theological, Anglican connection to Jesus, but a deeply personal, rooted, local, contextual in your actual life. This is why one of my favorite lines in all of English literature is the first two lines in Romans 12 in the message. Take your everyday ordinary life, your eating, sleeping, getting up, going to work life, and place it before God as an offering. Not some idealized life that you'll get when you've done enough spiritual formation. And I teach on spiritual formation all over America, so I'm not knocking spiritual formation. I'm just saying that ideal life that you picture, you know, when your dad who's in the nursing home finally dies or when your kids are finally out of the house or when I finally lose weight or that sort of idealized life you're waiting for that, you know, in that moment, then I'll really be able to have connection with God. That idealized, idealized life is never coming. It's not going to arrive. That's why you have to find the goodness of God in your actual life. And so I sit there in one of those stupid plastic chairs in an airport, and I ask myself, how do I find the goodness of God in God's own people being murdered who are doing what they're supposed to be doing? They're living what I write about and dream about. They're being God's cooperative friends. They're living lives of constant creative goodness for the sake of others and doing so empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they're murdered for it. Well, somehow you have to find the confident hope that 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 God is somehow still conscious of us, still conscious of you, and still actively loving. That's always been the big tension. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to help us understand how this happens. And so he actually says, well, how did these people do this? How did they die in faith, yet not having in hand what was promised, but still believing? How did they do it? And here's what he says. They saw it way off in the distance. This is how Peterson gets it. Waving their greeting to it and accepting the fact that they were transients in this world. People who live this way, he says, make it plain that they're looking for their true home and that they were after a far better country than that, a heavenly country. Now, here's what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that heaven is like way out there beyond the stars somewhere and that they were waiting till they could get out there. That's not what it means. The best way to think about heaven is to think about heaven as God's sphere within our actual world. Heaven isn't way out there sometime in space. It isn't way out sometime in, in um, distance. Heaven is a sphere. And so all around us, you know, the more we learn about physics and stuff, all around us is amazing stuff. And I, I think it's fun to read as much of as I can understand, you know, sort of quantum physics and to understand things like we're all connected. And you know, it's, it's fascinating stuff. I mean, I don't really get it, but it's fascinating. So if you think about it in, in that sort of way, heaven is simply God's space and place. Uh, we get a clue about this from the prayer when Jesus says, when you pray, pray this way, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is to say, the sphere in which you live, may that dominate the sphere in which we live. So Luke then just tells us, well, how do we get in on actually this kind of life? How do we get in on the kind of life that the ancients were commended for? 
And again, I love how the message gets this. When, when uh, Peterson has Jesus saying, look, what I'm trying to get you to do here is relax. To not be so preoccupied with getting so that you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over all these things. But you know both God and how he works. Therefore, steep yourself in God reality, in God initiative, and in God provisions. Let me say that again. What I'm trying to do, he says, is get you to relax. Peace, the, 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 the sort of idea of peace is enormously important in the Christian life. It's not something you strive for in any sort of dishonest way, like I don't really feel at peace, but I'm gonna act like I do. But again, I can tell you that there's hardly a more evangelistic power in our culture today than somebody who's actually found peace. I mean, if you wanna know just sort of simply surfacy why you find people all around you at work and school and stuff who are becoming Buddhists, this is they don't find any peace in Christianity. And they actually have a friend at work who's a nurse or a banker or whatever, and they think, well, she or he, they're, they're really a peaceful person. I don't know what they're doing. So they go ask them, what are you doing? Well, I'm meditating. Oh, really? What do you, what, tell me about it. And they begin to tell them about their Buddhist reality. And this is why all over the place you have Christians and all kinds of people sort of giving up on what they thought of as their religion to pursue Buddhism because they find in it the, the hope for peace. And... And what Jesus is saying here, look, the very thing I'm trying to get you to do here, if you want in on this kind of life, is you've got to relax your way into it. To not be so preoccupied with getting so that you can respond to God's giving. For it's people who don't know God and the way he works that fuss over all these things. But you, you know both God and how he works. And this is where the notions of what we think of as uh, spirituality or spiritual formation or religion or whatever, this is where it can be helpful as a means towards this end. As he says, steep yourself in God reality. You know, think of a tea bag, you know, in, in hot water. Steep yourself in God reality. That's what these ancients were commended for. Steep yourself in God initiative and God provisions. And you'll find all your everyday concerns will be met. Don't be afraid of missing out. And so we, we started this morning with this big thought. What if God is conscious of us and actively caring for us? So now let's close by hearing this last line from the message of Luke 12. Don't be afraid of missing out, he says. Here's the last line. You're my dearest friends. So were those people who were shot his dearest friends? Don't worry about missing out. You are my dearest friends. And the Father wants to give you the very kingdom itself. And I can stand before you wide-eyed, open-hearted, completely intellectually honest and tell you those people found the kingdom of God. No bullet can take it away. No absent of semen in your loin can take it away.
There is nothing that can take it away when God says, this is what I'm going to do. The only human responses are to cooperate, to be his cooperative friends. This is what the ancients were commended for. And, and get into this story and say, yes, God, I'm your cooperative friend. And like what you've done for all of ages, I want to live a life of creative, constant goodness for the sake of others. I want you to fill me with the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. I want you to give me gifts and power and authority and transform my character because I want to be in on what you're doing. And when God sees that, he goes, I count that as righteousness. When God just sees the intention of that, he says, I count you as good. You're my dearest friends. All you who are wanting to cooperate with me, you are my dearest friends and you will receive the kingdom. No ifs, ands, or buts. Just period. You will receive the kingdom. Let's stand now as we confess our faith in the Apostles' Creed. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.